Right, good afternoon again. If you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts 4 um, is going to be the text for this week and next week because this one sermon turned into two. So that may be fair warning for some of you to miss next week but because it's about money. Um, John Wesley, famous revival preacher from England who was also in the colonial U.S. in the First Great Awakening, made money from his sermons. Um, they printed sermons and sell them, and they sold enough of them where he actually made a pretty good amount of money from his sermons. But he gave all his money away, uh, so much so that it made his wife uh, pretty sour with him. He'd come home from a preaching trip, having made and given away a lot of money and bring very little home for Susanna and the 13 children. And Susanna, who... Uh, apparently was a formidable woman and bigger than him, would beat him over this and drag him around the house by his hair for giving away all their money. So, you see, church history provides us with inspiring stories about our heroes in the faith. Um, But the more I look at this passage and other things that the Bible says about money, the more uh, I'm able to sympathize with Susanna. Uh, when you see what Jesus says about money, you feel like dragging somebody by their hair. It's remarkably challenging when we think about what Jesus says about money, how the early church and the passage we're looking at today dealt with money and thought about it. Uh, what we have here is uh, a pretty picture of how they took care of each other financially, followed by the, the strange story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, This couple who sold property and brought it to the church and gave almost all the money they got from selling their property to the church and got struck down dead by God for it because they lied and said they'd given all the money to the church. Um, When I think about sins that I've committed for which I might have been struck down by God immediately, the idea that I gave a whole lot of money away and kept a little back doesn't even rise near the top of the list of things I have done, right? But... In this case, both Ananias and his wife Sapphira were immediately judged by God and killed at church because they lied. So if you're the kind of person that goes to sleep in sermons and this is the last thing you're going to hear, it's not a false conclusion to say that you shouldn't lie in church. If that's all you take away from the sermon, you know, that's on you. But it's a true thing that you're taking away. Don't lie in church. The more dramatic point that's made in this passage And the more challenging point is that a relationship with Jesus Christ turns all of our thinking about money upside down. Turns you into a crazy person about money uh, when you come into a relationship with him. And that's what we're going to think about today and see if we can get our minds and hearts around it. Let me pray for us first, though, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would um, give us... uh, Eyes to see and ears to hear, as your word says, um, that you'd make us open hearted enough to be challenged by your word, uh, that you would give us enough grace that what we read and hear described in this passage could be true of us as a church. It's what we want, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. It says, Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it, not rem- did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I've told you before that um, one of the adjustments you make when you come to a Presbyterian church is when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say debt instead of trespasses. And a friend of mine explained it to me. It's because Presbyterians would rather have their debts forgiven than their sins forgiven, right? <laughs> because we take money pretty seriously. Uh, it's our Scotch-Irish heritage, I guess. But the Bible takes money pretty seriously, too, but it does it in a, in a different way. The Bible demystifies money. Uh, it uh, pulls back the curtain like Toto and Oz and says, look, there's really nothing back there. Money... Uh, it's not as scary as it looks. It's not as important as it looks. It doesn't have the power that you think it has. The Bible demystifies money. Um, and so that changes the way Christians understand and think about their money, and especially how they think about generosity. Now, if you've made it this far and are yet a sermon sleeper, you're going to think that what I said today was you should give a little bit more money to the church. And again, if that's your only takeaway from the sermon, I'm not against that. I'm just saying there's more to hear than that, if you can stay with me. Uh, because these notions about money don't reinforce any person's prejudice. I mean, they, they don't match what we assume is probably true about God and money and the way he thinks about our money. Um, because it's more radical than him just saying you need to tithe, give 10% of your money away, which is a pretty radical thing to say. But the Bible doesn't even begin to stop there. Right? More than just tithe. He's not just saying... Uh, this is good financial advice, but three to six months living expense and savings, you know, and then you can begin to invest and so on and so forth. He's not saying save 10%, give 10% and live on 
you know, the good standard stuff, max out your 401k, the normal financial advice you'd hear from Christians, this isn't, that isn't the advice we're being given here. Uh, we're being given a crazy way to think about money and generosity. I mean, we're, if you think about money the way it's described here, your family's going to think you've gone too far with your Christianity. They're going to think that you've gone off the deep end and are some kind of a fanatic if you think this way about it. Because what's being said here is that for a Christian, all of your money is family money. It's family money. And there are two senses of that notion of family money, one of which we'll talk about this week and, Lord willing, the other the next week. Uh, the first sense is that it's family money and therefore we have plenty of it. Um, we, we have all we need because we're taken care of by Jesus. The second part of that is that we, we have our money in common. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But today I want to talk about how generosity comes from our knowing that we have plenty because we're safe and cared for by Jesus. So we're going to think about it together. We, it's a saying, I don't know if people outside the South say this, but uh, somebody said this about my wife one day. I heard him say, well, you can tell she comes from money. <laughs> and uh, we were thinking that would be sweet if that were true. Um, <laughs> She really comes from Saudi Daisy, Tennessee, right? She doesn't come from money, but she carries herself nice. And uh, so they'd say, you can tell they come from money. That is family money. And that is, you know, people who make their money the old-fashioned way. They inherit it, right? That's how old money. Um, and that's the kind of uh, money we have. We've inherited our money. It says in verse 33 here that great grace was upon all of the people. That is, uh, the favor of God, the provision of God, the care of God comes to them, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but by the free gift of God. Through what Jesus has done for them, they're now in a relationship with God. And therefore, Christians say this kind of thing. What do you have that you've not received? Everything you have, you have as a gift from God. We don't take credit for anything that we have. We don't congratulate ourselves for what we have. We say, what I have spiritually and physically in the world... Uh, comes from God as a gift to me that I haven't deserved, that I haven't earned. Uh, Tim Keller, blessed be his name, has uh, described God as the prodigal God. Some of you have read his book on the uh, prodigal son story in which he says the real prodigal in the story is God because of his, his immodest generosity, uh, giving mercy to those who don't deserve it at all. And God has been prodigal in giving to us uh, what we could never get for ourselves, and far more than we ever have or uh, have need of. He's given us everything we need. So that, what that means is that if you're in a relationship with Jesus, that you're safe now in the world because he's protecting you and will provide for you. He's promised to provide for you. He says, I, I care for the sparrows. You're much more valuable than they are. Not a hair can fall from your head without my knowledge. Um, I'll take care of you. We're promised that Jesus will take care of us now. And we're promised that we have an inheritance in the future. Right? That the meek inherit the earth, he says. That all things are ours, the Apostle Paul says. Uh, we're the inheritors of everything God created in his good creation. And eventually, uh, we will take possession of it when he returns and sets things finally back right side up in the world. So, safe now, inheritance in the future. I used to live in uh, Portland, Oregon. And one of the things I never could figure out was how... There were adults in the coffee shop all day. Every day, all day, the coffee shops were full. And I was used to coffee shops where, you know, if you see, if you see a grown man in a coffee shop at about 10.30 in the morning, 
Well, that's a youth minister, right? You know, everybody else goes to work so they can pay for their coffee earlier or later. I couldn't figure out how are these adults having coffee all day in the coffee shops in Portland? And somebody introduced me to the term trustafarian. Trustafarian, that is trust fund children who are living a bohemian life uh, in the meantime until their trust fund fully kicks in. But it's enough now so that they don't have to worry much and they can hang out in the coffee shop all day. That's what we are. Maybe not the Afarian part, but the trust fund baby part uh, describes us. You know, we have been promised that we'll inherit the earth. We've been promised that everything that we need will enjoy in great abundance, that there's treasure in heaven for us. All these things that Jesus has said about uh, money and possessions. It's just that like any good trustee, uh, you don't give all the money to the idiot children uh, before they can handle it, right? You you uh, wisely meet out the money to the trust fund children as a good trustee. And our trustee uh, knows what's in our hearts. And so he's pretty careful with most of us about how much money he gives us to use. But the point isn't that he's holding out on us. The point is that he's wisely managing what is ours. But we're trust fund children. Uh, Everything is ours. We're told, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become middle class, right? So you through his poverty might become rich, like 1% are rich, like Jeff Bezos' money rich. You through Christ's poverty become rich. This is the grace of Jesus poured out on his church here and with us uh, that has made us rich, not just, uh, not just spiritually, but materially. We'll have uh, prosperity in our bodies and prosperity uh, financially in our work and everything when the world is set back right finally. It's not set back right finally yet. Uh, God takes care of us now. But we look forward to the time uh, when we will have our inheritance as God's people. So um, that's where generosity comes from. Is knowing that you're well taken care of now and you have an inheritance in the future. So... You don't cling to the money that you have now as tightly. You don't need to. It says remarkably in verse 32 that no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one said any of the things that belonged to him is his own. Can you imagine having that sort of an attitude about money, being that secure? I mean, if you were Jeff Bezos rich, Bezos, Bezos, I don't know. I know tomorrow's prime day, but I don't know his name. If you, were, uh, if you had his money, um, you wouldn't worry much about money, most likely. Right? If you're rich, you might be preoccupied with it and thinking about what you have to do with it. But it doesn't have the same fear factor it does for most normal people when they think about generosity. And for us, our inheritance is supposed to free us uh, to act like rich people with our money. To not be afraid of it, to be able to get rid of it and give it away. The fear of money is broken in us by what Jesus has done for us. So we don't have to fear to worship it anymore, even though we're very prone to, right? People, when you mention idolatry, money is a lot of people's first category, right? Say this is, this is certainly a place where we're tempted to put our trust and our hope and our security is in money. Um, we use religious language for it. Just like if someone starts talking openly about sin, you figure in our world they're talking about dessert. If someone starts talking about the Almighty, they're almost always talking about money, right? The Almighty dollar. 
Uh, we use religious terms to talk about it. The first banks in the world were temples. The first coins in the world had the images of deities on them. Right? Because we think religiously about money. I saw a Wall Street Journal cartoon. It had a pilgrimage of bankers uh, visiting the place of the apparition of the invisible hand of Adam Smith. Sort of like Our Lady of Guadalupe. You know, but they're going to, to visit where someone had the apparition of the invisible hand. Uh, because we, are, we tend to worship and trust and fear money. And because of that, we grasp for it, like drowning people would grasp for a life raft, and we find generosity terrifying. Because to give away your money is to give away your control. It's to give away your safety. It's to give away your security. It's probably to give away your happiness if you give away your money. It seems like it. If you're going to say, I'm rich in Jesus... By faith, don't see that now. And my money's family money. And I'm not going to consider my money mine. And you're going to listen to Jesus say things like, if you have two coats and somebody doesn't have any coats, you give them one of your coats and actually live that way. And don't call your money mine. Then your story had better be true. If you go home and tell your wife, we're rich. And now we can be generous because I got an email from a Nigerian prince. And uh, there's a couple of transactions that have to take place, but basically we're set now. We're on easy street. Well, you're going to get dragged around the house by your hair, right? Uh, Your story better be true if you're going to live with radical generosity with your money. And uh, the apostles here are preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And they're saying as sure as Jesus is risen from the dead, his promise to take care of you financially is true. Your inheritance is true, and therefore you can be generous. Therefore, you don't have to cling to your money or call it mine. You can treat it like family money um, because the resurrection is true. If it's not true, you certainly shouldn't throw your money away as if it were true. So you have the example of Barnabas here, who uh, the son of encouragement. Um, I've been called Barnabas myself several times in my life, but it was always sarcastic. I've noticed. But they called him the son of encouragement. He, gave, he sold his money, I mean, he sold a field, which is capital. It's not just income, it's capital he sold and brought and gave the money, put it at the apostles' feet, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do because he felt safe enough in Jesus and rich enough in Jesus that he could be radically generous. Even with his capital, uh, which no one ever recommends, right? Never give away your capital. But Barnabas was able even to do that, which is striking. Now, some of this uh, radical generosity that you see in the early churches because um, they had extenuating circumstances. After Pentecost, when people were visiting from all over the world and uh, the Holy Spirit fell and had this radical uh, number of conversions of new people into the Christian faith, uh, a lot of them stayed there. And so the Christians in Jerusalem had to take care of the people who were there. Just like later on, when Paul was traveling the Mediterranean basin, he was raising money to take care of the Jerusalem Christians because there was a famine there. Uh, they were taking care of each other. So these were, there were some extenuating circumstances going on right here. But still, it was generous sort of in that Deuteronomy 15 way that we were reading. There are not going to be any needy people among you. And if anybody's needy, then... You take care of them. That's why the early church was known to be uh, an easy mark for charlatans and liars. Because they were willing to be generous. 
Uh, I'm not suggesting that we be easy marks, but I'm saying uh, people ought to at least suspect that we're easy marks. Uh, More of that next week. I want to say this, though. The law can never make you generous. The rules, God's law, can never make you generous. Because the rules in God's law can never touch what's broken in your heart that keeps you from being generous. Um, It's the grace of God that was poured out on them abundantly that enabled them to be generous in this way. The hard issues of security and greed and envy and fear and selfishness and pride and everything wrapped up in how we think about our money. Uh, The law can't touch those things. If you you try to deal with your money and God... um, just in terms of rule keeping, then you'll wind up just trying to create a bargain with him. You know, say, if I, if I give this much away, you know, will you bless me and be kind to me? Um, or if I give even more away, will you be obligated now to do what I want you to do for me? Can I, can I move you off of your reluctance to love and help me if I give enough money away? You know, that idea that we bargain with God. Um, Warren Buffett sadly and famously said when he uh, took that pledge to give uh, so much of his fortune away, um, that's not right. It wasn't Warren Buffett. It was the former mayor of New York. Bloomberg said, uh, afterwards he said, um, there are a lot of good ways to get to heaven, but this is an excellent one. I'm going to put God in my debt by giving my money away. That's the law. That never works. It certainly doesn't put God in our debt. It doesn't change anything that's in our heart that grasps for money either. If you just tell someone, tithe, give 10% of your money away, that's what you have to do. That's what God requires. So you just do it. Buckle down and do it. It doesn't make people freer with regard to money. Uh, it, it makes them more worried and nervous and scared. Right? It's uh, more afraid of money, more envious of people who are able to afford the things that they could afford if they didn't have to tithe. Uh, more judgmental about people who don't tithe and just buy what they want with that money. The law doesn't change what's broken in our hearts the way we need to be changed. The grace of Jesus does. It's being set free by him to know that you're free from the fear of money, that you're safe in his care, and that you're rich because you know him. That's what enables you to be generous. So when the Bible talks about a tithe, it talks about the tithe... Not as the final pinnacle or rule of where you get as a Christian in your generosity. It talks about the tithe as a gateway drug. You know, this is your start into Christian generosity. This is how you learn. This is the, you know, if you ever go bowling with kids, they put the inflatable things in the, in the uh, ruts. What do you call them? The gutters, yeah. Yeah, so when they roll the ball, they'll hit the pins. The tithe is like those inflatable things in the gutters to get us going. I don't see any attorneys that I can name, so I'll, I'll just go ahead with this. What do they call a hundred? What do you call a hundred lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start, right? Um, sorry, that's a. What do you call a Christian who gives ten percent of her money away? It's a good start. It's a good start because it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's ten percent or five percent or fifty percent. What matters is: Are you safe? Are you rich? Are you free? And are you generous? So we're not told in the New Testament, here are the rules, here are the, here are the uh, tax tables where you figure out you know, where your income is and what percentage you owe in giving away to Jesus' cause and to the poor. Um, we're told, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, 
for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now give, however that, whatever that means. Give that much. Give that way. So what I want you to do today is just uh, steep in your wealth a little bit. Steep in the safety that you have in Jesus. You may be crushed right now with debts and uh, financial questions you can't answer. Uh, things that are pressing down hard on you. Uh, I'm telling you that you have a Savior who's promised to take care of you. If he hasn't given you everything you think you need today, right now, well, he will. And you can trust him in the meantime. Right? That's what we're told. The early church, um, this is what made people think they were so weird. You know, Christians don't have any distinguishing cultural markers like, you know, jumpsuits and purple Nikes or something like that or special underwear. Or, you know, things that you could do that, that everyone would say, oh, well, you know, there goes a Christian. Like, um, we don't have any outward markers that way to set us apart. The things that set Christians apart from the early days were uh, the two things that always got mentioned were their sex ethics and their generosity. You know, that they, they only had sex with uh, their wives and... Um, monogamous relationship in a culture where having sex with prostitutes and slaves and even children was not frowned upon. The Christians were weird because of their sex ethics. They were also weird because of their generosity. Uh, they, they were known to give 10% of their money away and to take care not only of their own poor, but of the poor of the people around them. It was their distinguishing mark. It was the thing that made them weird because to think about money this way is weird. It's crazy to think that your money's not your own, that you don't have to be afraid of it, that you don't have to trust in it. So, I'm generally opposed to iconoclasm. Um, I can't think of any examples where I think that was a great idea. Maybe in the Old Testament when they tore down the Asherah poles, if you know those stories, that was probably good. But like the iconoclasm of the Protestant Reformation and things always makes me queasy and makes me wish they had thought of a different way or plan. But the iconoclasm I like is when we desecrate the idols of mammon and we desecrate money as a god and we say, we're not going to worship in your temples. We're going to desecrate you. And how do you do that? By giving it away. You are not the boss of me, right? You're not the boss of me. I don't have to worship you. I don't have to be afraid of you. I'm giving my money away. So you have family money and you can be generous. Let's pray.